All right, I'm gonna go like this and Three. two, one. Welcome everybody to Peggy's Recovery Corner. Today we have a very special guest, my good friend Richie Blair, Richard Blair. Welcome to the corner, Rich. How's hey, it going? Good to see you, Pesh. Ah, great, man. How about yourself? Good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I actually, when I first started this podcast about six months ago, I was making a list of people that I thought, people of interest, of my interest, that I thought would be good for the podcast. Um, I've heard you speak in various circles. I know you're huge in the recovery community in Los Angeles, and I thought it would be of great importance to have you come on today. Um, so would love to hear from you. Would love to hear about you. Uh, you know, sort of like your upbringing where you, I think you're a native Los Angeles individual, right? Is that, are you like a unicorn or is that where you're from LA all the way? Uh, born, born and raised. Uh, yeah, I, I was born, uh, I think now it's called the name of that hospital now. Uh, I think it's Hollywood Presbyterian, but I could be wrong. Um, but, uh, it was queen of angels. So I was born in Queen of Angels Hospital, yeah, in 1980, and thus started my journey with my mom, and we moved all over L.A., lived all over L.A., and uh, kind of just kept heading west until we hit the beach and kind of bounced back, you know. But, um, yeah, L.A. native through and through. And you, you grew up, like, was there any siblings in the picture? Later. Uh, my mom married when I was 11. And my brother was born when uh, I was 12, almost 13. Uh, we have a great relationship now, but I was kind of off and running at that point. So I was already distancing myself from everyone. And yeah, so, but we're, we're cool now. I love my brother. So, so when you say off and running, you mean you were experimenting, you were having fun, you were getting, you were partying? Oh yeah. Uh, even at that age, I had already dabbled into uh, some of the harder stuff and, um, yeah, I guess it's all harder stuff. I don't know why I say that. Uh, you know, if it's an issue, it's an issue, you know, uh, too much water, you know, too much water, you drown. It's like everything you can overdose on everything. Right. Right. Uh, but, yeah, but yeah, I was, uh, I was definitely, I'd say it was more than experimenting. I had already, I don't know if I had crossed the line, but it was pretty close. So I was born in 71. I know like I grew up in Orange County, LA, uh, late 80s early 90s the club the club scene turned into kind of the rave scene i mean it went from like drinking at the bars to doing ecstasy and things like that and, and maybe even doing some heavier stimulants and things uh were you into that that scene at all by chance no um oddly enough i love to dance i love music uh, i love staying up all night uh at that point at uh, that point i loved drinking. I love doing drugs because that was a big part of that culture back then. Um, yeah. And uh, every part of it, I loved from a bird's eye view, except I wasn't a fan of the music that they chose. If I could have been able to choose the music, I would have liked it more. Uh, that was the main element. Just I just didn't like the music. Every what other part was great. Like, what did you at like? That point, at that point, it was strictly hip hop. Strictly like straight die. I had heard other music, obviously, like, you know, you're stuck in mom's car, you know, you're going to listen to whatever mom's listening to. Some parents would let their kids listen to what they wanted to. Uh, it's not, yeah. not my car. Luckily my mom was 19 when she had me like just turned 19. So, uh, she was big on K rock and that. So I, you know, I was raised right. And, you know, um, I know we both have a, a love of Prince and that, but, um, 
you know, so I love good music, but I, at that point, 12, 13, who we, I was straight hip hop, you know? Um, yeah. So if it was hip hop all night with like lots of, you know, drugs and, and that feel good, I'm all about it, but it just wasn't that scene. That was, that was not the scene. I was very much a hip hop junkie myself. I grew up on hip hop watching it just originate in New York and, and grow. So when I went to the rave scene, correct, like the, the music was much different. But then I started to kind of get acclimated to that that style or the, the house music. And what was cool is over a period of time when they grew that scene, then they would have like a hip hop room with like underground yeah. hip hop, old school, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. So that was really cool. That was cool. So, so what were you using first? I mean, what did it start with? Uh, I think it started with booze, you know, I was, um, I don't remember how old or my first drink, I didn't know that it would be such a big deal. Uh, but, um, yeah, I often say like, I should have had someone film it, you know, like, or, or like a before and after photo shoot, you know, uh, right. before my first drink, I'm just, you know, judging the world, you know, just uncomfortable on my skin. And then the after photo, it's pretty much the same thing. I'm just sweaty, and <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like, um, but uh, yeah, I think it started with booze and then it turned into a weed quickly thereafter was acid and then started experimenting. And I had that mentality as a young man, um, you know, as long as it was from the earth, there was this idea that if it's from the earth, it's okay. And, uh, you know, looking back now, it's hilarious because everything's from earth. Like there's, there's no drugs or anything <laughs> shipped in from Pluto. You know what I mean? That's what I say this all the time. I, you gotta love the kids that we see these days that are trying to teach us. That it's natural. It's it comes from a plant. But, uh, I think everything comes from a plant. I think the coca creates cocaine, right? Yeah, well, yeah. what about meth? That was that's built in a lab. I'm like, yeah, but at some point or another, it came from the ground. So either way, that's it. Uh, yeah, you gotta love that's the justifications. Funny. So when did uh, when did it become a problem? The partying, the using, the drinking. Was it manageable for a while? Oh yeah, yeah. I think I was young enough to where I, I don't think I did a good job of hiding it. I actually took a lot of pride in, you know, uh, the culture and having people know that that's who I identified myself as. And so, you know, I don't think I hit it, but I don't think it was bad. I managed to get by at school. I managed to make friends. I was good at sports. I was, I was popular. I, I had a great childhood in a lot of ways. I didn't know beneath the surface that I was distanced from the world and I was not okay with who I was as a person. But as far as alcohol and drugs were concerned, I felt like it was great. It gave me everything I was ever looking for, um, you know, uh, self-esteem or confidence, you know, or seemingly uh, connections to other people, something to do. I loved, my mom asked me one time, she said, uh, this was once I was sober a bit because it was always tough on her, but she asked me what, if you could choose any drug, only pick one, no harm, no consequence, no nothing, no physical, no, no lose your life, no anything, what would you choose? And that was tough. And I thought, you know what, for the feeling, for strictly feeling based, ecstasy. ecstasy Thank you. Ecstasy. Uh, you read my mind. I was thinking it, the same thing. But my only, and I told her this, I said, but my only issue with ecstasy was it was just a pill. And all you did was swallow it. There was no doing, there were no tools. There was no 
digging or breaking up. There was no, there was no sprinkling. There was no hitting the pipe and the chore boy and the stuff. There was none of that. And right, so right. that's, I, that's why I ended up doing sometimes 10 pills, you know, in a sitting just because I just needed something to do. So, um, but it, it didn't become a problem. I'd say probably until tail end of high school, uh, was when it first started to see, I was giving up on everything around me, you know, um, probably a real problem before that if we like dissect it but where it started presenting as a problem was probably tail end of high school junior senior year okay all right and i was still succeeding i graduated with honors i had like all kinds of cool stuff accolades promises you know all these fun things but um i had given up internally that's when i noticed if i look back hindsight so it didn't really affect your grades but you were just kind of falling apart on the inside yeah, I, I had done so well my prior two, three years uh, within you know my high school experience that I had enough, I guess, credits to graduate. So I just had to go to a few, like two or three classes, I think, my senior year, just because they were only for senior year. The rest of them, I think I TA'd one class, teacher assistant, and then I was out. And so I got to do whatever I wanted to. Um, and I was able to coast. I mean, they gave me a medal when I graduated at Samo, uh, Santa Monica High School, because I had done so well. You know, I was part of like a hundred kids that like got some sort of medal. I don't even know why I got the medal. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't feel like I earned it, but whatever. But um, yeah, I still knew deep down that I was distanced from the world. I was not connected. So when you got out of school, what did you do next? Were you, did you go to college? What did you do? Yes, uh, I went to Santa Monica City College for SMC. One, one day. That's right, Pico Tech. Um, yeah, Pico Tech. I, I went there for one day. I never went back. Uh, so, I mean, I, I can't really say I went to college. You know, I crashed one class. I got it, but then I never went back. So, um, and it was like a Monday, Wednesday class at 1 p.m. And I slept through it the second day. So I said, I'm not I'm just I'm over it. I never went back. It just wasn't for me. We have very similar stories. Interesting. Okay, so then what? Did you did you, were you moved out of mom's house at the time? No, no. Um, I was uh, definitely stuck to the umbilical cord. Um, I, <laughs> I I couldn't function on my own. Actually, well into sobriety, even I would say I kind of forced you know at that point once I got sober. But um, prior to that, I was I was trapped. I, my, my mother and my stepfather were selling their house in Santa Monica and I was still living there. So the real estate agent would show up from time to time to show it or, and I would have to hide or something. And meanwhile, I'm cooking crack out of it and having people over bellowing smoke out the windows, you know, in 16th street in Santa Monica. And, um, yeah, it's just wild to look back on that. And then finally it sold, escrow went through. I didn't know where to go. My mom paid first and last on an apartment in Van Nuys and the rest was up to me. And I got a job. I got a job at Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> I was selling an ice cream. I got hired as the assistant manager and I was quickly promoted to manager. I forget what chintzy amount I was making, but, um, I was stealing everything out of the safe. Um, I wasn't bringing things up. I was just a shady guy. Um, what else? Uh, Isn't that a trip to live in, 
to look at the life that we have right now and to think like, who the fuck was that? Yeah, it's wild. I, I don't, it's not even just that I don't recognize who I am. I am shocked at the life I live today. The, the fact that I wake up to an alarm and I appreciate it, not only do I do it, I love it. I love structure. I love schedule and routine. I love connection to my wife and my daughter. I love my friends and family and to see how that means so much to me. Whereas before the only thing that mattered was my needs, my wants, uh, get high, get money, get laid. Yeah. I mean, I was very, just, just caveman, you know, very basic, small, small world, very sad. Do you think the, the, some of the music that we grew up on as much as we love hip hop, I know I still love hip hop. I love it. But do you think that kind of defined our lives or we were trying to find our identity through some of the stuff that was glorified in some of the music that we were listening to? I don't know. You hear that argument from time to time. I, I think, I think everyone's different. I think it's not the music. I think it's the individual. I think there are certain individuals that are fanatical, you know, about a certain artist or a certain genre or a certain message. Um, and you could have a hundred people listen to that same song and maybe two of them are going to take it one way as opposed to 98 of them that are going to hear it another way. So do I think that right. music defined me? By no means. There was never a time where I thought I was actually, uh, I did think I was pretty tough. You know, I did know deep down that I was not a gangster. Um, but, uh, but I did think I was pretty cool. I was pretty tough. I rock cross colors and a Malcolm X hat, man. I was, um, I was no joke, man, in my mind. But uh, in real life, I was, I was a big joke. <laughs> yeah. So when did, I mean, yes, it became a problem towards the end of high school, be using and drinking, but when did you actually, like, what, how was your 20s? How'd that look? Did you get sober in your 20s? You're 20 years sober now, right? Yeah, I just celebrated 20 in June. Um, and uh, I I got sober uh, June twenty first two thousand one. So I had just turned uh, twenty one in January. So six months later, I got sober. Uh, the beginning of the twenties was brutal. I got evicted from that apartment that my mother paid first and last on. Uh, I couldn't pay the bills. I got fired from that job because I was robbing the safe. Obviously, um, you know I, it was just it was bad. I didn't know what to do. I had ended up in a place that I always thought I could get out of. I felt like that kind of Bugs Bunny, Ferris Bueller kind of nothing can ever, you know, get me. And I had I had gotten got. So it was time to to straighten up and I ended up um ended up reaching out to some friends. I luckily had some not friends, but just people that I, yeah, they were friends, you know, uh, we didn't talk much, but here I was in a position where I needed some help and they knew where to uh, direct me. And where did they direct you? Was it? Uh, uh, I did. Uh, no, actually, I never went to rehab. Um, uh, I never went to rehab. I, I didn't know it was an option. I think at that point I was so cash poor and uh, I come from nothing. And so it was, um, <laughs> It just felt like this, uh, it wasn't real. You know, I don't know how to put it. I just felt like rehab was this thing that cost millions of dollars. And I just was not from that place where you had to have good insurance. None of this I really knew. I just knew I did not have what it took to go to, to, go to rehab. Um, so I just skipped it and just figured I would 
I don't know, not, not get it. I also didn't want to be sober. Uh, in reality, I, I wanted to, I wanted to manage it. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to get high and be successful. That's all. It felt like just if I could just get my life in order, get the career and the cash thing and the, the relationships and self, I guess, but then get high. Like people. Do, what was it? That, what was it that you were getting getting high on at this time? Was it stimulants? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was I was an up guy. I was crack meth. Um, I, I I didn't turn anything away, you know. But I had my preferences. Uh, There's a lot of booze. I would go to Seven Eleven. I was kind of classy, so I would buy like the seven dollar bottles of wine from Seven Eleven, and I'd get like four to six of those a night, um, typically in that range. And I would just walk back to my little apartment. I would smoke crack and drink red wine from plastic cups, um, not solo cups, but my own own like my plastic cups that I owned. And uh, <laughs> I would I would drink so much wine and not water, and smoke so much crack that I had these like these like my mucus would mix with the wine. I had these dark kind of purplish maroon wine. I call them wine slugs that would build around my mouth. And then I would eat them because there was, you know, wine in there. Uh, I tell people that they're like, dude, what is wrong with you? And I was just this gross, oh my God. You know, just, I was, I was dirty, bro. Just dirty. And I was always naked. Wine and sweaty. And crack. All, like what a mixture, wine and crack. A I was bit, bougie, a little bit of class in there. <laughs> I uh, I had standards, man. I was uh, upper echelon, you know. It's funny <laughs> in my we, own mind. Yeah, it's funny that we can laugh at this and also just I relate so much. I understand. I get it. Yeah. Oh, it's wild, right? I mean, sometimes I look back and it's just bizarre to me that as dark as it was at that time, as like seriously the pit of grossness that it was at that time. Even now, 20 years sober, amazing family, health, uh, life, career, uh, I still look back with like a certain amount of fondness, you know, a certain amount of romanticism. I look back and it's like, oh man, that was, there was something beautiful about it. As gross as it was, I was, right. um, I was at the core of it. I was at the very bottom of the depths of like, you know, the negative side, the dark side of me. Mm -hmm. uh, something beautiful about that in its own right. I would never want to go back, but, you know, make no bones about it, but I can acknowledge that it, it it's beautiful in its own right. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that you say that because there was, you were talking about wanting to just do drugs and be successful. So I think uh, I relate to you a lot. I, we were, at least the way I was raised, I was raised to be ambitious. Um, I came from a family that was driven and wanted to succeed and definitely uh, with that came education, but because I was screwing that up, like, cause I, I too, I, I didn't do good in high school, but when it came to college time, I, I was like, I'm not doing this. Like <laughs> I know other ways to make money and that's what I kind of did. But I remember like the type of stimulants I did, it would kind of fuel my ego and make me think that I'm bulletproof. Like I'm invincible. I can just go and go and go like, but but you know when you're like when when your soul is just it's just dying like it's, it's totally just melting and you know like this this isn't the way it was supposed to be this isn't good but how do i get out of this when you're kind of just in that the whirlpool of of just grossness like living in the underbelly of the beast at its finest right so yeah. um, 
So then you had some friends that helped you out. What did you do? Did you require detox or anything like that? No, I, um, I, I ended up uh, meeting up with some people and then someone was uh, nice enough to let me stay on there. Uh, they said they had a spare room. They did not have a spare room. That was a blatant lie. They had a cot in a not even large hallway. I mean, it was just a hallway. And this cot was covered with this, like, I don't know if you guys remember that light blue blanket with the satin rim, but it always would pill up. Like everyone had that blanket. It was like that light blue pilled up gross blanket and yes. it was covered in cat hair. Uh, and I remember it was just covered in cat hair and I'm allergic to cats. And I would sleep on this guy's cot. Uh, he was a tennis instructor. You know, he left at uh, 6 a.m. so that he was like, you got to leave at 6 a.m. Um, he'd give me a bowl of cereal or like a, I don't know, um, something. And I would hit the streets and just walk around and try and find a job. And, it was it was rough, man. It was rough, but then I, he would I would come home when he was done uh, with his clients, and he let me stay there for two weeks, and that was two weeks where I had somewhere to go and sleep, and um, no one else was offering. And after that, I stayed with another gentleman who was an actor. Uh, I had seen him on some some shows, and mm -hmm. and he actually did have a spare room, and um, I thought he wanted something. I thought there was some sort of play on that, like he was trying to get at me. He was not. And he was just trying to help. And I remember the first day I woke up at his place, two weeks after the first guy, uh, he wasn't even there. There was a note on the kitchen counter that said, help yourself to cereal or Pop-Tarts or whatever. I'm gonna go walk the dogs at the dog park. I'll come back, we'll, we'll you know, go meet up and go hang. And, and, and these guys were, both, both of these guys were sober guys, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was just mind blowing that they would uh, help me with nothing no, no gain. There was no, you know, personal motive on their side besides just sticking their hand out and helping the next guy. And that was, I love that. that was, I love it. Yeah. And your mom wasn't talking to you at this time. No, 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 no. She had nothing to, to say. I, and plus I didn't have a phone. Like I had a disconnected pager, you know, mm -hmm. I just, um, <laughs> it's like I had no money to hit the pay phone. Cell phones existed. I'm not like trying to make it sound like I'm, you know, back in time or something. Yeah, they were, they were bricks. You know that they, they were like the brick phones. <laughs> yeah, and I there was I did not own one, um, yeah. and so uh, but no one was talking to me. I I had kind of blew it, and so uh, yeah, I strung together some time and then kind of rebuilt those bridges with family and friends, some friends, uh, some family. Yeah, and then things started to take off, you know, excuse me, sobriety started to take effect. How long, I had no into, idea. how long into your sobriety did you, uh, did it take for you to actually make an absolute decision that this is going to be the way of life that you, that you're choosing to, to be in as in like, no, no turning back, no using or drinking. Like, was it immediate? Was it, uh, over a period of time? Like how long do you remember it being? Well, I, uh, I tried getting sober for a few years. Um, and when I say a few years, it wasn't constant for a few years. It started at a certain point. I would try every so often. And when I say try, it was loose. I, I like to think that I'm smarter than the average bear, you know, that I can be successful where others are not. And so, um, I just kept failing and you know, much like anything in life, if you're going to be good at school, it's not just about attending classes. It's about actively listening, 
listening, participating, reading the books, doing the homework. That's how you get good grades. That's how you learn something, not even just about good grades. That's how you learn something. And the same thing in religion. You can go to, you know, whatever religious body you're into, let's say it's church. You can go to church all you want. That's where people get together. But at the end of the day, if you're not practicing whatever's, you know, in the literature uh, and applying it to your life and practicing that, going to church is just a, a social gathering, you know? And so the same thing with me, you know, in my recovery, I, I thought that because I was hanging out with sober people that uh, I was living this thing and that I would do what they did and then I would get my money right. I would get the relationships right. And then I would be sober. I put the cart before the horse. Right. And um, so I kept trying. And this time, like when you ask, when did it really click? It clicked quickly this time. Uh, you know, 20, 20 years ago, but, um, it was, it was rapid and it, it, but it didn't dawn on me until probably about, I think the first time was at six months. And I remember I had just kept my head down and was just staying sober, living sober. And all of a sudden I realized that six months was in like a few days and I was just astounded like six months. Like that's, that's wild. You know, and that's a that's a, a real amount of time. And so I um, I started to get proud and I realized that not only was I coming up on six months, I hadn't thought about drinking or doing drugs for probably like four of those months, maybe three of those months. Amazing. And it, you know, thoughts would creep up, but like it had been a minute and I went, Oh wow, it's it's, it's working. Like I'm I'm in this. I'm not just, yeah. you know, on the sidelines, I'm playing the game, man. I'm in the game. It felt good. It felt love, real good. I love it. So, yeah. uh, and obviously, you've been here to stay ever since. You put together 20 years. You're how old right now? 41. So, got it when I was 21. 21 years old. So, there's the hope for the youngsters that come in and are contemplating. I mean, and I want to talk about your career now, but before that, there's a miracle that I think happened uh for you along the way in your sobriety i i'm not mistaken you got reunited with somebody that wasn't in your life growing up you want to talk is it your father yeah yeah it's pretty wild i um i grew up as i mentioned a single mom pro product of a single parent household and uh my mom and i were very close and that i never knew my father and she she spoke you know lovingly of him you know they were high school sweethearts that kind of a thing and um, I never met him. I spoke to him, I think once or twice when I was around 14, uh, you know, he was just trying to like buy me a basketball with like Michael Jordan's signature. And I'm like, yeah, that's cool. But like, I don't even know what you look like, bro. Like, and I, but I didn't know I was 14, you know, I'm in the, the beginning, the, the budding element of my disease. And so, um, I wasn't able to say like, Hey, I want to get a meaningful relationship with you, not stuff. And, um, but I never met him and then he passed away probably about eight years ago from alcoholism and drug addiction. And mm -hmm. Somewhere along the way, I think like a few years after that, maybe it's probably like five, six years ago, I, I did one of those DNA things um, and to see like how Irish I am and that, you know, like what's my, mm -hmm. what's my background? Cause you know, my mom is super pale and Irish and I always knew that my biological father, the guy who passed away was native American. And I think that's where I can, I'm able to get a tan, you know what I'm saying? And my mom was always jealous, right? Cause she burns, you know, she's either white or red and then back to white. There's no tan, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's weird. Cause here I am this blue eyed Irish guy, you know, and that I can get a tan. 
Um, so I take the DNA test. I'm 60 something percent Irish and, you know, 20 something percent uh, Native American. And, you know, I see Native American, my head just goes Cherokee because I'm, you know, basic white guy. Like, I don't, I don't know. And it's who knew. Um, all of a sudden it starts unfolding. I get an email one day, two years later, after taking this test out of nowhere. And it says DNA match parent slash child. And, you know, I talk pretty openly about this uh, prior to my wife. You know, I was kind of a man of convenience, you know, like I, I was a low hanging fruit kind of a guy, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. for lack of better words. And I wasn't I, I didn't really go after girls I was into, you know, anyway. Um, so I just assumed that my daughter probably had an older brother or sister. And uh, it said Roy A, August something, 1962. And I'm like. Not my kid, but I screenshot it and I texted it over to mom, like question mark. She wrote back in caps lock, fuck, call me. And I called her, she picked up real quick and she told me the story. She was dating her high school sweetheart, Bob, the guy on my birth certificate, the guy that passed away, and, uh, Native American alcoholism, like it all fit. And, you know, she was dating him, epic breakup two months before prom. She starts dating a coworker from McDonald's, this guy Roy. Uh, they dated for a couple months, hooked up a couple times, and then she got back together with Bob. So it was like a lot of Bob, a little bit of Roy, a lot of Bob. And so when she got pregnant, she's like, oh, Bob. Yeah, that's Bob. And it was not Bob, it was Roy. And so I was with some friends when I found this information out. I had just gotten back from Ireland. I was in Big Bear with a couple of other of our friends and their kids. And, you know, everyone's in the know at this point. I mean, this is happening real time as I woke up that morning in Big Bear. And my friends are now online searching for this guy, Roy. And wow. my boy, my boy Isaac finds him. And he, <laughs> he finds him on LinkedIn. And I don't know why, but like, <laughs> because he found him on LinkedIn, it was such a good feeling. I was like, oh, dang, dad's, dad's got a job. This is great. You know, like he's employed. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's like one thing to have a Twitter or a Facebook. It's another thing to have right. a LinkedIn, you know what I'm saying? And uh, I was cracking up. And, you know, he finds him on Facebook. And I'm scrolling through this guy's Facebook. And every year, he's got two birthdays. And I'm thinking, wait, wait a minute. Like there's only one type of person on the planet I know that's got two birthdays. Ah, it's, it's us. That's so it. Day. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I went, man, and this guy's sober too, you know? And, uh, you know, we, uh, we got in contact uh, actually. Oh man, check this out. I think it's uh, two years tomorrow. I'll tell you right now. It's one of them. It's coming up. To, oh, the 29th, the 29th. So two days from today will be two years, um, which is just why. Oh, no, sorry. Three years. Uh, and it's been magical. We have such a great relationship. We talked yesterday. We talked frequently. He's met my family and uh, we have a, a, an amazing connection just from being sober together. And obviously, you know, uh, DNA and that. But yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild, man. That's a, that's a miracle. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I just, yeah. that touches my heart so much. I love that. So yeah. uh, thank you for sharing that with us. There's, let's talk about what you do now. Cause I, you know, you own a place it's catalyst recovery and, and how did it start? Why did it start? Um, and what is it? What exactly is it? You want to talk about it some? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I I just celebrated 20 years in recovery myself. As once Happy I got birthday. sober, thank you kindly. Uh, once I got sober, I caught fire to this, like many people do. And I wanted to help others get what I had got. And so I jumped into working in treatment with a tech. Uh, I worked at a bunch of different places. I uh, had different positions throughout my tenure. And then I started doing this sober companioning thing. Uh, and I was, a, I was a sober companion for 10 years and I worked in treatment you know, for the last 19 years. Um, and you know, I noticed a few things. I learned a lot from a lot of like, great clinicians you know, they just, the education from that was amazing. Not that I would ever say that I have a clinician's background, but I learned a lot by just listening to them and watching them, how they operate. I learned probably equally as much from bad ownership or bad management. And so, and, and some good as well. I don't want to make it seem like there's bad clinicians and there's amazing owners. So it goes both ways. There's always exceptions, but I learned, yes. I just observed and listened and, and took, took it all in. What, I, what was blatantly apparent was that residential treatment was effective to a point. And while someone is in rehab, they typically do pretty well. It's upon departure when they go home that they start to fall apart. So here I am, a sober companion. I'm doing this stuff. I'm realizing that I've never been trained by anyone I've ever worked with. They've had some loose, some of them might've had like some meetings, you know, where we do training. There's no training, it's just a bunch of stories and, you know, get out there, kiddo, you know, you're gonna be great. Make sure to put in your notes every day and, you know, no background check, no nothing. They didn't even test me if I was high myself. They had no idea. They just know me from the rooms. You got some time sober kid and you seem to have a way with people, you're gonna be great. And meanwhile, it's up to me to figure all this stuff out when I'm working with someone. And I'm, I turned out that I was good at what I did, but I started taking notes as to what I did and why I was effective in my role. And I developed a training program because I wanted to be able to train other people to do what I did as effectively as I did, to be aware of how we communicated with others and the words that we chose, uh, to, to, to know what to pack when you're going somewhere, to, to look ahead and make sure you're prepared as far as if you're going to different airports, you better know the lay of the land. Where's the rental car spot? If you're traveling with someone that's a little a little suspect, you better know how to handle yourself. And, that's right. You know, the, you know, all of those different elements. And I put together this training package that I felt really helped people learn how to do this. And mm -hmm. from there, I decided that I was going to strike out on my own, that I was going to create Catalyst Recovery, and we were going to do it different. And so quickly, I, I realized that in order to do it different, Typically, most sober companion companies are strictly experiential. They pair you with someone that has their own recovery experience, and then there might be some loose oversight, rarely any training, if, if any, um, and, and then it's just, hey, go and do that thing and be sober. You know, uh, What I wanted to do was add the clinical component, which adds professionals with the sober companions who are the pair professionals. And that marriage of the two, I noticed that's what works for treatment, like residential treatment. That's really effective. Right. You've got your therapist, you've got your psychs, you've got your psychologist, you've got that treatment team, that clinical component, but you've also got techs, you got the chef, you got all those people that are like, you know, not no letters behind their name, but they got the experience. And that, that marriage was what worked well. And so I started bringing in clinicians to Catalyst. 
and then I thought, you know what, I want to get sort of some sort of credibility. You know, I wanted to add some legitimacy to what we did. And so we sought out joint commission accreditation. For those that don't know, joint commission is the gold standard of um, kind of, you know, the survey process, the auditing to make sure that you are the best of the best and providing uh, stellar patient care and patient safety. Mm -hmm. So it had never been done before. Not in, not, we're not a facility. So just to sort of let everyone know, Cattle's Recovery is not a rehab, like in the sense that we have a place that you come to or in Malibu. There is none of that. We're not in Malibu. We're anywhere that you are. The whole idea that I came up with was we need to be sober where it matters most, which is in home. Now you tell people, I don't know about you, but I tell people, hey, we're going to set up a treatment plan in your house. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. Someone's going to live with me 24-7? That's crazy. And I go, right. okay, touche. It's weird. For sure, you're going to have this stranger living in your house. Um, yeah, that's wild. But think about rehab. You're going into this house that's completely foreign to you with a bunch of other people you don't know, staff and you know census, and it's going to work. And then you're supposed to learn it so well that you're going to translate it back to your house. And we all know the success rates or lack thereof, you know, and yet rehab makes so much sense to people because it's what we know. And somehow having someone in your house is just ludicrous. And I thought, you know what, we're going to make this something that makes a lot of sense. And uh, so started that in 2014. Catalyst Recovery is the first and only Joint Commission accredited in-home substance use treatment. Um, and we... Uh, we work all over the world. We work with all different types of people, uh, mm -hmm. working very, very diligently to become reimbursable by insurance. I have a lot of fun stuff in the works. I didn't know that you guys work all over the world. I thought it was uh, in L.A., but that's really cool. Oh, no. oh yeah. We're everywhere. Everywhere. Um, yeah, we've, <laughs> we've done work all over, and it's really cool. So, so let's say you have a client that – that is pursuing that in-home treatment and they need a detox within the house. Does that mean a doctor comes out or do they see a doctor and then they're on detox medication? Is there a, a clinician within the house that's overseeing their detox or is it just one person that's like a companion? Oh, no, no, no. Um, so there's a doctor, there's a 24 hour nurse, uh, filling those orders, depending on what that person's presenting, quick to assess and determine whether or not that person needs an actual hospital detox or a facility detox. Detox is the, the most crucial element of treatment. Uh, things can go sideways pretty quickly. And, um, you know, so we want to make sure that the person is the right fit for in-home detox. Uh, but yeah, they have full-time nurse, uh, companion as well. And then the, the doctor who is, um, doing the initial assessment and then follow up. Gotcha. So sometimes there's detox. Sometimes they get detoxed somewhere else in like a medical facility or something like that. But then they come home and then that's where Catalyst and the treatment team works around whatever treatment plan that they create for the individual within their home, right? Yeah, actually, typically we'll meet them. Let's say that uh, if it's in-home detox, we're obviously there with them. Let's say they go to a detox or they go to a treatment center and do 30, 60, 90 days there. We'll actually meet them at the detox or meet them at the treatment center and go home with them. So oh, there's okay accidents. I was always told accidents happen at the intersections, right? Right. 
on straightaways, we do pretty well on straightaways. You know, intersections is where there's cross traffic and that's where most people crash. The intersection in treatment is when you're leaving detox and going to residential. When you're leaving residential and you're going to IOP, whatever, sober living, whatever. Those intersections of, you know, transfer of care, that is where most people fall off. That one little flight home, all of a sudden the bar, all of a sudden, you know, you've got your uh, your flight attendant asking you if you'd like a, a cocktail. And you know what? Yes, yes, I would. And the next thing you know, your 30, 60, 90 days is just yeah. gone. Right out Here we go again. That's right. So, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I believe in your service. I believe in you. You know, I'm a fan. We've been admiring each other for a few years now, you know. Um, I love what you've done with yourself. I, it's amazing to hear. So all of this, you created all this with no college training? Like you didn't go to school for this or you did go to school in recovery? No, I did not. Uh, I actually Brainiac. don't have You're any Brainiac. letters. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I believe based off, like in, based off of experience of working in the field, you learn the do's and the don'ts and the ins and outs of, of what works and what you wanted to create. I love it. I think it's. Yes amazing. and no. I, to speak to that point, you know, I just feel like because so many of us, we, we stand behind experience. Experience is key. Uh, experience, my, my experience is just that. That's only my experience. And I can't translate that to anyone else except me. Um, right. what, what I do give myself credit for is knowing what I don't know and making sure that I find the people that do know those things so that we can then work as a team a multidisciplinary team, because I know for a fact, I only know so much. Let me pull in the right people so that we can all come together, bring together our collective uh, expertise. And at that point, surround an individual because I'm not going to guide your course. Oh, how do I know? And then each person is different. You know, you surround this one person, that one person's different every time. You get the same person on paper, 57, 57, alcohol use disorder, alcohol use disorder, uh, affluent, background, whatever, whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. and then come to find out family history, uh, ACEs, um, medical history, all treatment history, all that stuff starts to break apart. And you realize you're dealing with two completely different individuals presenting issues and all that. Who knows what's going on? And all we see, and typically in our world, and maybe you've seen this as well, people say, oh, it's alcohol and male and they've got this insurance. Oh, we send them here. It's like, wait, right. what? Like, who knows if they're dealing with the underlying issues? You know, he's got a personality right. disorder. That place isn't going to help. He's got to go over here, you know? So, yeah, um, I just want to, I don't want to speak to, you know, as if I figured something out that I, right. I know it all. I, I'm definitely not a brainiac. Let's just dispel that quickly. I know enough to know that I don't know, and I'm going to find the right piece of people that do. I respect that very much. Thank you for saying that. I have two last questions, and then we'll close it out. But one is how many staff members are in Catalyst? I mean, is there, is it a lot of people? Is it, is it very, very? Internal staff, there's, uh, there's four of us. Uh, as far as clinical, you're looking closer to like 10 to 12. And then as far as agents, we call them not sober companions, we call them recovery agents. The reason I just need to speak to this really quick. The reason we say agents is not because we're some bougie Hollywood service, but because the name of the company is Catalyst Recovery. Catalyst. A catalyst is an agent of change, right? Uh, something that speeds or alters, you know, significant change. 
and that's what our agents do. And so agents, we've trained over a hundred agents. Uh, we have a roster that is very full and dense of people that have uh, great training, great, you know, background checks, all that other fun stuff. We have the best of the best. I love that. That's, that's, that brings me to the final question I was going to ask you is you, you do trainings. I mean, how can somebody get involved? Is it still available? Are you guys all full on your roster or are you always open to training new agents? This is a great question. So uh, we are always open because, you know, because we have such a, uh, a vast demand, uh, you know, a demographic that we serve, mm -hmm. you know, we could have uh, an elderly, you know, female in, you know, Wyoming, uh, we might have a young non-binary uh, individual, you know, locally. We might have, you know, who knows? And it's global and all the different moving pieces. And like I said before, all the different presenting issues. So we are always in need of more people, always. Now, with that, the tough part is uh, just because of that, we need access to as many as possible. We, we don't always have, you know, uh, participants for everyone, you know, so that means that we're not working with, you know, 300 people a day, you know, and we just have everyone busy and we're all over the world doing big things. You know, we're more of a boutique, smaller place. We work, you know, uh, we keep a certain standard and therefore we don't work with many people. But um, so uh, we're very selective about who we choose to work with actually that want our services. But uh, we do offer trainings. They are paid trainings. Uh, we go through the fine tooth comb. It's actually uh, co-facilitated by a clinician friend of mine. He uh, speaks to the clinical components of building rapport, um, uh, talking about identifying red flags, you know, communicating within a multidisciplinary team, and not from my element because I only speak to being a sober companion. He speaks right. to being a clinician and how important it is for the science behind it, how you can develop trust with an individual so that you can better serve them, so that you can identify what those red flags are so that you're not, not even just theirs, your own. If your needs are being met by a client, if you're doing too much talking, most likely you're, you're not doing it right. You know, so uh, we go over a lot of elements that no one else does. And I think it offers um, a lot of insight for, for individuals that want to do this work. Love it. And so they can reach you on your website or how would they be able to get a hold of whoever does the training or would be do, doing the training? Yeah, our, you can go to our website. I don't remember if there's a page, uh, but there is, uh, you can email careers at catalystrecovery.com and send your resume and a, a cover letter, a CV, whatever it is that you're into. And, um, you know, we, we review those and we have trainings. Typically they used to be quarterly. And as of you know, late with a, a, a global pandemic, we yeah. are a little more sporadic with those trainings, but we're looking to get those started up again soon. Awesome, awesome. Well, it's so good to see you here today. It's uh, it's good to see your face, and I hope to link up with you again very soon. You know, care. Uh, I love and adore you. You're a good man. You do good work. I believe in your work ethic and just you as a human being. Um, you help a lot of people and. And that's recovery to me. That's what it's all about. That's what we do here, right? So I appreciate uh, that, Pesh. Both ways, man. Oh, man. Thanks. Is there anything you want to say before we sign off? 
I know you're a busy uh, no, man. I just, uh, no, no, no. I appreciate the, uh, the time just getting to see you means the world to me. Uh, the fact that you have this recovery podcast is pretty awesome. Uh, catalyst is starting our own podcast where we're going to be interviewing different people as well. And, uh, we haven't put out the exact start date on that, but yeah, be on the lookout for follow us, you know, on Instagram and the rest of it. And you'll, you'll hear all the fun stuff. Also, we're going live every Wednesday at noon. I'll be going live. Catalyst will be going live with Jason Waller from the Hills. Um, and we're talking all things recovery and answering questions in real time. So please feel free to follow Catalyst Recovery to, uh, on Instagram and make sure to hop on our live event tomorrow at noon and every Wednesday. For sure. Most definitely. I will. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Have a good rest of your day and we are signing off. Bye. Thanks, Pesh. Thank you.